Welcome to Charla Cultural, a little chat about culture from Asterix Journal and City of Asylum. I'm Adriana Ramirez. And I'm Carla Leo. Welcome to episode two. It's all about Denise Froman. Denise Froman is a poet, performer, and educator from New York City. Her work has appeared in the Breakbeat Poets Latinx, Nepatla, an anthology for queer poets of color, the New York Times, ESPNW, and has garnered over 10 million views online. We'll begin with the poem Denise Froman performed at City of Asylum on October 29th, 2019, before the pandemic, of course. And after a quick discussion, we'll transition to the rest of Froman's performance. We'll then close with what we're reading and some remedios for the road. Welcome. Carla, can you give us a little bit of background on this performance? Yeah, Latinx I'm Proud is a series actually that I founded along with Adri and Malcolm Friend and Eloisa Amescua. So we started, this was the very first installment. Denise performed with Soledad Caballero, Tania Shirazi, and Seca Gonzalez. This is like a very exciting series. So I'm a big fan of Latinx and Proud series at City of Asylum. And this was Denise's very first time performing at City of Asylum, which is always delightful. I just want to acknowledge the organizers as well and say, like, what up, Pittsburgh? Because it's like my first time in your wonderful, beautiful city. Steelers, some Steelers all over. Um, I want to acknowledge the organizers of this particular Latinx and Proud series, Adriana and Carla and Malcolm. Can we clap it up for them as well? And what a, what a joy, what a treat to read with Tanya and Zika and um, Soledad as well. So I just want to just wanna say that. You know, I, I think we are at such um, an interesting, difficult, and heartbreaking time in our country's history. And many of us are feeling the weight of that in many different ways. And I know I've been thinking a lot about like, what can these little poems do, right? Like what, what, what can my poems do? What can poetry do in the world? Um, and I think whether or not you're a poet, and this is something that I say a lot to young people, um, I think that we all can, uh, I think there's a, a particular call to action right now to build an intentional relationship with language. Um, we are seeing uh, language weaponized against communities as a way to justify inhumane policies. Uh, my friend Fabiana Rodriguez, uh, cultural organizer and visual artist in the Bay, um, says has a wonderful talk about how um, policies and institutions and laws are the last things that change, right? But that culture is the first thing that we can change, right? Storytelling, and I think maybe that's what poems can do, is contribute to a narrative that humanizes and, and protects the dignity of workers and working class people and immigrants um, and those who are incarcerated and families um, and young people all over the world. So I know I've been thinking a lot about that, and I think that that's what first attracted me to poetry. Um, and I wanna say, if I was in high school and stumbled into City of Asylum tonight, um, and was in the audience at a series called Latinx and Proud, I think that I would have found myself a lot sooner. Um, I think that I would not have um, uh, suffered under the weight of shame and invisibility for as long as I did. Um, and so just wanna say how important um, this series is and how lucky I am to be here. Um, I want to, um, you know, I saw an article today that talked about the babysitters and nannies who um, went to work in California during, did you see that article? During, there's all the fires happening in California and that police officers and first responders had to turn these nannies away. And I think a lot about um, um, domestic workers and the people in our neighborhoods who are the centerpieces of our neighborhoods. And one of those people, at least growing up in New York City, were the street vendors. Um, and not just any street vendor, but a particular street vendor called a piraguero or a piraguera. Now, if you're Dominican, you call it a frio frio, right? If you're Mexican, you might call it a raspado. Um, if you're none of those things, you might um, wrongly name it a snow cone, okay? Um, it is essentially that the, the snow cone, but it is absolutely not a snow cone. And I hope that this clarifies this for you. So here's, um, as a child of domestic workers, um, as a child of um, musicians, right? Like how many people in this room have a loved one or a family member who works primarily or in some capacity with their hands, right? Um, this poem is for them. This poem is um, 
for our parents, for the people who pick our fruits and vegetables, for the people who make the block hot. Um, it's called the Queer Girl's Ode to the Piraguero. Oh, Piraguero, my first lover, the only man I ever wanted anything from. <laughs> I sprinted half blocks for you, got off the bus two stops early, took the long way home just to see your rainbow umbrella. Oh, Piraguero, candy cool syrup god, Boricua Batmobile, wooden cart pushing, bobsled papi. When the viejitas asked for the 10th time whether I got un novio, the closest name on my tongue was you. <laughs> Who else made me break my neck in two? Who else gave me so much for a dollar? Who raised hell when they nicknamed your island delicacy snow cone, or worse, shaved ice? <laughs> I trusted you the hallelujah work of your bare hands, the dirty white kitchen towel you laid over a fat block of ice, and never once did I ask you questions. And when they pushed you off 9th Ave, when you packed up on 96, I only saw you after ball games on 131st and 5th when the hipsters threw ice in paper cups, added nutmeg and real ingredients like mint leaves. Called this, called this an upscale makeover for a poor man's treat. I wanted to shout out, no, leave my man alone. Tell me who else could turn a blue shopping cart into a 57 Chevy, or a mom and pop shop, maybe the Elotero on El Centro, the Chudo ladies by the A-Train, maybe my mama, once the nanny, who sewed curtains for a couple upstairs, made an office out of her hands. Like my pops, who cut his saxophone until the velvet flesh of night, rearranged the altitude of a palladium dance floor, and then, a plump wad of cash, a worn rubber band, a 401k shoebox, which is to say, praise everything we build under the table. The underworld of workers and wielders, America's thumping baseline, the chorus of a country where two for one is the best hook to every good song I know. Like the way you turn my tongue into a red carpet, like the first woman I ever loved. Oh, Piraguero, you winter, my whole mouth. You conductor of cool. You're the only one I know, the only one who can govern the thick heat like a DJ scratching a glacier. You make the whole city rock. <laughs> so great. Yeah, you got chills. I got so many chills. How about you? I wanted to, uh, to yet. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, just like cheer, er, uh, tears and chills and just like totally just like moved emotionally and like moved to action. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, one of the things I like about the Be Now Widow poem is that it really evokes the people in our lives that we interact with mm -hmm. that we don't necessarily have a name for and yet that means so much to us. I think about the sushi guy mm -hmm. at the Cathedral of Learning back when I used to work at University of Pittsburgh. Like, this is a real friendship. Yeah. So <laughs> listening to Be Now Widow just made me go, oh, there's so many people in my life mm -hmm. that meant so much to me and that I never got to know because I only knew them in this one very specific context. Yeah, she in the poem, he, she doesn't name him. She alludes to him as her first lover. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> yeah, it's it's because there's an intimacy. There's an intimacy. Yeah. What did she? What is the line? He winterized my mouth. Mm. You know, brought a coldness. I just oh, the way that people can impact your life mm -hmm. in such specific ways is so strong. Yeah. I love that. I think the conductor of cool and like DJing the whole city scratching ice not only badass line Denise Froman fucking throw down lines like that and like make us just have chills but yeah, why are you making us feel yeah making us feel like I'm in touch with my emotions damn it <laughs> no one wanted that <laughs> but like yeah now I'm like missing Mexico Oh, I know. You know? 
I know. There was a wonderful protest I went to like 20 years ago at the Alamo, and it had a bunch of, um, we, you know, rasperos. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and there was a huge sign that said, Viva la raspa and la raspa unida. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was picture of this giant multicultural snow cone and I just remember being like these are my people yes (laughs) but let's talk snow cones for a second because snow cones are important um no raspas for real did you grow up eating raspas yeah definitely um de fresa de limon um see oh man we used to put chamoy Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know if you guys know what chamoy is, but it's like if jelly was spicy, I think is kind of the way <laughs> of thinking about it. I don't know. Um, it's like a hot jelly mm-hmm. and you put it on your raspa. Oh, and in Colombia, they do condensed milk. Mm-hmm. So they'll it. do like fruit and condensed milk together yeah. with the ice. Yeah. You're just like. <laughs> now I'm thinking of all like the Mexican Mexican um, desserts that I love, like tres leches. Oh. Conchas. Oh. And actually, like, la, um, the lady of, like, La Panaderia. Oh, I know. Of, I never knew her name, you know? But every night, you know, walk a couple blocks uh, and then, like, buy some conchas and pan blanco from her. And she knew us for years. And, like, como esta tu familia? You know, all of that. But then I left Mexico came back to visit and yeah she was gone so maybe maybe our call to action today Mm. is to learn the names of the people that have Mm. impacted our lives like this you know like let that piraguero have a name Mm. and you know let the raspa person have a name and let the panaderia woman have a name and sushi guy needs a name (laughs) um you know and i think we should all make it a mission Mm -hmm. of ourselves right now especially during these times to appreciate yeah. The people that really changed our lives. You know, I, I think a lot about how the paletero, there was this guy in San Francisco who lost his cart and lost his paletas and there was a huge fundraiser for him mm-hmm. because he was so mm-hmm. important to the community. And I think the same thing happened to a guy in Chicago. Mm-hmm. And I just feel like we don't realize the impact until they're gone. Yeah, and like Denise says in the poem, like the underbelly or the underworld of workers, people that work with their hands... Um, yeah, like, my grandma's hands were so soft and her nails were just, like, always done. But she's like, I worked 35 plus years in a factory. Mm-hmm. You know, she's like, I earned these hands. Um, oh, I love that. Yeah, I, yeah. I earned these hands. That's such a wonderful statement. She, like, raised six kids by herself and, you know, like... A Saturday with my... Just give me one Saturday with my two kids, and I'm like, please take them. I love my kids, but also, oh, I cannot imagine, like, Mm -hmm. so many Latino women who had massive families, worked, Mm -hmm. like, you know, 40, 50-hour-a-week jobs, Mm -hmm. um, and raised good kids, good family, and home-cooked meals, everything. Yeah, like, the matriarch and the work ethic... And just a life of service in that way. And I guess we don't realize in how many of our communities there are so many people that have dedicated Mm. themselves. And I mean, I think I thought it was really interesting. And part of the reason we put the intro in with this poem is because, you know, Denise is talking about, this is October 2019, Mm -hmm. right? Mm Pre-pandemic. And so we're still thinking about the invisibility of essential workers, Mm -hmm. right? In terms of Trump and in terms of those policies. Mm -hmm. And to think about the context that this poem takes on now, a year and a half later, after essential workers have been defined and Mm -hmm. have in some ways been lionized, but in other ways have been thrust in right into, you know, being cannon fodder during this pandemic. Mm -hmm. And so what is essential, right? And how essential is that piraguero? Or how essential are, you know, the ice cream trucks Mm -hmm. and the people that really make our communities thrive? I would honestly say, like, extremely essential, you know, like, it being in like shelter in place and you hear um the little music from the ice cream truck you know at clockwork every night 9 a 9 p.m and it's like it can be comforting oh absolutely 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 um and so that's yeah that's a big part of it all i think is is learning that uh so in in puerto rico so she named the raspado frio frio Uh uh-huh that's cute i never heard of that (laughs) <laughs> it's kind of like Pio Pio or like, you know, like the onomatopoeia of um, 
like a little chicken or like a little yeah. un pollito. Yeah. No, and I I loved when she talked about gig workers, especially mm. like people with day jobs and then who are going at night to like play music mm. or who are poeting um, in addition to the gig. You know, like there's, you know, the, the nine to five and then there's the life of the artist that happens at night. Mm. I remember this conversation with my father when I told him I'm going to be a writer. Mm. And my dad said, well, isn't that like a hobby? Like, mm. don't you have a job? And then on the mm. side you do writing? And I was like, nah, <laughs> I'm doing this. You know, and, and there's very much a sort of a Latino energy, I think, that you work and then on the side you do your art but everybody yeah. does them. Yeah. <laughs> like, my dad's secretly a poet, even though he's also, like, a sales dude, you know? And my mom, like, she's, like... She used to be a judge. She used to be a lawyer. And now she's, like, working with my dad in the family business. Mm-hmm. Um, but on in her spare time, she, like, sews things. Mm-hmm. And she, like... I don't know. She glues flower petals on things and covers them in glue. It has a name. It's, like, decoratage. I don't know. Sounds... <laughs> Sounds like that's what it's called for sure. She loves it, yeah. And it just makes me realize how many of us are artists mm-hmm. on the yeah, side. Yeah, that's a. Oh man, that's such a heavy. Like, I watched my mom put her artwork in back burner mm. to be like that full time mom to have that full time job, and. Yeah, like, she had me when she was pretty young, but there was an unfinished painting of hers. Mm. And then years later, I I liked it unfinished, but uh, I knew the the symbolism. Like, she sacrificed that and, like, never went back to it. Mm -hmm. Is that... Yeah, I mean, what is that moment where, what is the day that you just decide, oh, I'm not going to art anymore? Or is it a gradual thing? Is it, like, Mm. you know... Does she remember the last time mm-hmm. she stopped to create? Um, oh, I'm sure she does. Yeah. But she went back to writing. So that's good. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe that's the beauty of art, is you can always come back. No matter how long it's been, you never really quit. And, like, both my parents are secret poets, I think. <laughs> and that's how I discovered poetry and literature and even some of the music I listened to as a only child for so long um i was just entertained by their bookshelf mm. so yeah. yeah both my parents can recite poetry which i think is really fascinating they're both like um declamation mm-hmm. recitation people mm-hmm. and so like you know i know my father can't even be like hombres necios que acuséis a la mujer sin saber la ocasión which is you know sor juana inés de la cruz <laughs> like oh my god it's like some 18th century stuff 16th century mm-hmm. stuff you know and so the fact that but maybe that's a cultural thing because like both of my parents my, my father's Mexican and my mom is Colombian mm-hmm. and both of them have a very common like reader of poetry mm-hmm. that they both know you know your Cervantes yes mm-hmm. but also yeah. like your Neruda and of you know this kind of sense of like our poetic history yeah I think it's so cool when you have this sense of like the legacy of the poetry mm-hmm. that you've heard mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right or what is what is like the literary legacy that your parents have left you the bookshelves right that you grew up with or that you will inherit um to some degree uh you know i grew up with a lot of cheesy books like cheesy it was like you know there was like your 18th century poetry but then there was like ken follett or like james mishner books and i grew up with you know reading these because i would sneak them out of my dad's room sometimes they were tawdry <laughs> it's like super tawdry spy novels um and i remember one called the key to rebecca that i read way too young uh <laughs> But yet, it sounds sexy. Yeah, it was. It, there was, but it was not appropriate for yeah. me. <laughs> and it was very formative. Like I remember years later being like, "Oh, I remember this part of this book." <laughs> and so, um, yeah. But I think having a library in your house where people can really come in and dig in and discover is so important for me with my kids. I mean, my kids are toddlers right now, so mm-hmm. yeah. But when they get older, you know, they'll the tawdry stuff's on the high shelf. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. so hopefully they'll start at the bottom and just work their way up and by the time they're 18 they'll be like what is this <laughs> and denise works with kids right she works with youth. yeah um and it, i remember her asking in this performance like what can poetry do for us like or what is what's uh poetry's you know labor of love in in our world our everyday 
and this is I think what we're talking about really hits that like this is something that poetry does for us maybe yeah sub subconsciously or uh, subliminally you know it, it it's there all along until we can like reach those shelves. Oh yeah, I mean listen know? listening to one poem mm -hmm. and we're like here's our parents. Yeah. Here's our see being a secret artist like there's so much conversation that one poem can open up mm -hmm. for us completely. Um yeah. and I think that's wonderful. Yeah. Um, I wanted to circle back to the uh, so Denise uses, you know, um a lot of Spanish words in her work and I my relationship with Spanish um, in my poetry specifically so I stopped italicizing I stopped translating and that's like a huge movement right now and it's empowerment and it's identity um, you know and you, if you know you know and then you're in the in, the in crowd um, but she was using words like um, you know abuelita novio you know and then so that made me think about when I talked to my abuelita um, she's always like Cuando te vas a casar oh. y necesito unos nietos or nietos and so my sorry if this is uh, TMI but um, my sister it, it doesn't prefers women and so my abuela is like dónde está tu novio she's like estoy esperando and then my sister just like yep <laughs> and so like that those generational you know expectations the yeah. cultural expectations and then so yeah Denise you know in her in this poem she's like my first lover you know like my like the woman that turned my tongue into a red carpet but you know she's you know expressing like this is the better the answer queerness yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. It, like without exactly saying like no abuela so it's queer you know <laughs> or like she doesn't have to say that she can just say it in this poem and like yeah. One day, like, making those choices to not tell Abuela, you know? But you have to, you, like, it's a it's a choice you make for the path of least resistance. Exactly. So, for example, like, when I was dating a woman at one point in my life, like, and I went to Colombia to see my grandma, and my grandma was like, how was your love life? How was your heart? Mm -hmm. And I said, I'm really happy. I'm with someone that's making me very happy. And she was like, oh, tell me about the boy. And I really, I described the person I was dating. As if they were a boy. And I know that they, on, on some level that was like, I'm not sure that I would do that today. You know, this was like 20 years ago. Oh, God, I'm old. Um, you know, but like there's this moment now where if, I mean, I'm married to a dude, so it complicates everything. And it did stop, by the way. Once I got married and had kids, everyone stopped talking. Um, and, and so the question stopped. All of it stopped. It's really interesting because, you know, as somebody who is kind of pansexually queer, you know, I could have ended up with anybody. Um, it just sort of worked out this way. Um, I have a friend who's always like, bisexual women, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, well, if 90% of the population is straight and 10% is queer <laughs> and you're pansexual, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I mean, this whole idea of outing yourself to your family yeah. um, versus outing yourself to the public is is really different. And I feel like in, um, in Latino culture, with the emphasis on the like heteronormative, mm -hmm. like nuclear family type of thing, um, it's going to be interesting a generation or two. Yeah. Like when we're grandmas mm -hmm. or that grandma level, mm -hmm. you know, are our kids going to be as scared as we were yeah, I hope not, of disappointing yeah. you know our elders I really hope not um, and yeah my sister you know is out so I'm not outing her on our podcast but um, but right like she never necessarily like set like sat the family down and said it right and I think it was because of like the, these cultural barriers the the fear you know that like she's gonna get kicked out or whatever and like I let it, I, yeah it's not to get like super overly complicated and like dive deep into that topic but it is it is something in um central and south american cultures that we have to grapple with you know and like later you know it's not easy now yeah it's not easy and even when there is acceptance like people don't have the language yet ah yeah and so they will misgender you they will mispronoun you um they will ask you to be more feminine less feminine more matcha less matcha um you know more butch less butch uh you know uh, your family really wants you to just fall into this sense of like normal 
normal mm-hmm. because normal is easy. And, you know, it's going to be really interesting to see, you know, when the chickens come home to roost on this, like uh-huh. a couple of generations later, as people are getting, you know, more comfortable being their true selves, what will that mean for how we consider normal? Yeah. And, and Denise mentions that, like, you know, an intentional relationship with language and my intentional relationship with language is like, okay, I'm really claiming um, Latina and I'm claiming Latinx, but then I had that moment of insecurity where it's like, oh shit, like all of a sudden X isn't correct anymore. It's like Latin A. Well, that's if you're in, so if you're in Mexico, you would never say X because that doesn't work linguistically, right? And the X is such a gringada. So like, you have to be like, so, you know, Latino works, Latina works, Latine works. But if you are in the US and you say Latine, everyone's going to look at you like you're crazy. So you have to be like Latin X, maybe. Um, I use them all interchangeably. I'm the worst. So I'll be in the middle of of a lecture and I'll be like, and if you look at it from a Latin X perspective, Latinos feel... (laughs) And I'm just switching. And yet, you know what? I never use Hispanic. Mm, yeah, me neither. No, I'm done with that word. Like, and I don't even, I couldn't even articulate what the real problem is with it. Other than, you know, it's got Spain in it, but so does Latin references, like the Latin language root, colonizer, just the same. So, like, yeah. what is, why does Hispanic not work anymore? Is it outdated? Is it just... Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I really embraced um, Chicana because that's the one that's closest to me. Like, I was born in Mexi- in Mexico, so I like that. You know, it's, like, very specific, though. See, whereas for me, Chicana designates something coming out of the labor movement in the mm, 70s yeah, and 80s okay. led by Cesar Chavez, the Chicano movement. Yeah. And so when I think Chicano, I think I am not Chicano. Um, you know, like my family, um, you know, uh, for whatever reason, we, my father was very privileged when we came to the U.S. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we came in legally through an airport, <laughs> you know, with visas. Um, you know, my father owned a business. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I did not grow up working class. And so I never identified as Chicano. Mm-hmm. Because my it was instilled in me always that that was mm-hmm. a very specific political stance and a political movement, and yet I see Chicana being used now just to generally mean mm-hmm. like Mexican American woman or Mexican American male, like yeah. Chicano Chicana, and so you know how does that work when yeah. it, it is such a loaded term mm-hmm. with a certain history? Can I just be like me, <laughs> you know? Right, like <laughs> yeah, uh, I'm Mexican and Colombian, which is what most Latinos actually do. Most Latinos do not call themselves Latinos. <laughs> Most Latinos will say I'm Mexican, Colombian, um, you know, like Denise began, but, you know, and I think that that's the most useful designation. It's just that in the U.S., we, they need a box to put they us need, all in. Oh, my God. Like we need to check that box. So and they it, know. Yeah. Even though we're totally different. Yeah. All of us are politically different. All of us have like a spectrum of spin co- mm-hmm. skin color, that's a right. spectrum of ideologies, a spectrum of the countries we come from. Yeah. Our Spanish is all different. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I recently um, filled out the application to get the COVID vaccine and it was uh, it was like Hispanic, Latino, Latina. And then right under it was like the little box, not Hispanic, Latino, Latina. And I was like, okay, well... Thanks for giving me the... If I don't cross the box, right. I'm obviously the other box. Or not, maybe not obviously. I actually appreciate that white people have to now be like, white, yeah. non-Hispanic. Right, right, right. <laughs> Just used to being like white normal. And now they're like, non-Hispanic, okay? Yeah. Calm down. One of my... So I guess that's going into like code switching a little bit because if... Or like, I guess, yeah, like what label are you going to use when and where? But um, I also like the rise of uh, pocha... Is something oh, yeah. that I really like. I like that term. And people are still kind of treading lightly around it. Like, what does it really mean? And then other people are really embracing it. Like, Sarah Borjas. She's like, I'm pocha. Yeah. Know? I mean, like, pocha, uh, Spanglish, right? Yeah. Um, you know, and it's weird because, again, I grew up on the border. And so Spanglish or pochismos were very normal and a normal part of talking. Like, people would be like, uh, you need me to, you know, cortar y tu yarda? And you're like, yarda, what a fascinating word. Mm-hmm. Right? Because in Spanish, jardín, in English, yard... Pocho, yarda, mm-hmm. right? El parking, 
Like, those are words uh, that, sí, you know, parking. instead of saying, like, el estacionamiento in Spanish or the parking lot in English, no, el parking. I love that. <laughs> and it, it's fun. It's an entirely new language. And yet, for my parents, for example, they were like, never speak like that. Mm-hmm. It classes you. You need to speak pure Spanish or yeah. pure English. Do not mix the two. And yet, I love the poetic possibilities. Oh and going back to the poetic, intentionality yeah. of language, you know, the, like, new words and mm-hmm. new phrases we're able to come up with. And it's so exciting, like, the evolution of language. It's never stagnant it's never static um and then i really love something that i've been trying to use maybe appropriate too but um pero like you know oh yeah i love that and then with my pero like sometimes i'll say uh pero i mean <laughs> even in spanish pero i mean no me gusta <laughs> and it's kind of, and like in mexico it's like fresa like, oh yeah you know so o sea. O sea, yeah <laughs> i grew up with that but um with my non-spanish speaking friends i'm always like hola mujer or como estas or like in the text like hola yeah. and then I'll just go into English and I'll all say gracias to like my coworkers, and they're trying to learn Spanish so it's all really cool and it all connects to um assimilation and then back to like the normal is easy but then you know like when when we're in the United States like what language do we use and then our parents being like don't mix the languages only speak English at home like you have to assimilate and then that's going to make uh, like your life easier. See, I was only allowed to speak Spanish at home because mm-hmm. my parents were so scared I would lose my Spanish. Oh, yeah. Because there were so many people who just stopped once they went to school. Because mm-hmm. they were like, uh, why would I speak Spanish? It's so much easier to just live in English. Mm-hmm. And so my parents were like, this house is an English-free zone, mm-hmm. only Spanish. You know, and then people are still shocked at how good my Spanish is, mm-hmm. which I think is really fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, but code switching, the ability to code switch. I, I, you know, one of the things that I think is really fascinating is that we don't talk about U.S. Latino culture as being on a distinctive culture that is its own mm. culture. Yeah. You know, and I think that, you know, something to think about and to differentiate is, you know, how do your cultures change when you are in this common immigrant narrative, mm-hmm. whether or not you want it. Mm-hmm. Right? Because you you are. Um, and even if you're like old school Mexican and you've been here for 200 years, you are still looked at as an immigrant in this country. Yeah. You know, even if the border changed on you. <laughs> so, oh like, that that happens in South Texas. Like, there are families that have been there for 200 years in Granjeño who are undocumented mm-hmm. and who have lived for hundreds of years on their farmsteads. But they, like, the borders changed around them. They never, they give birth at home. They don't have the paperwork, the document. Documentation. Mm-hmm. And so, like, to even prove who you are gets so complicated mm-hmm. um, when you kind of exclude yourself from the modern narrative of mm-hmm. uh, you making sure that everything's dotted and crossed. And so, yeah, I we have, I mean, this is just one poem, and we yeah. just, <laughs> oh my God, unpacking. Right. It's so exciting. So, let's listen to another poem by Denise Roman. more than two years uh, since Hurricane Maria devastated Puerto Rico. And I've been thinking about um, what does democracy mean to a colony? Um, What does democracy mean to the estimated 4,645 Puerto Ricans killed, not in the hurricane, but in the aftermath of the hurricane? That there is a pattern of extraction. If you just look at the relationship between the US and Puerto Rico, which I invite all of us to do. Um, You'd see that since the beginning of the invasion that there is just a pattern of extraction, right? Um, To using Puerto Rico as a military base, as a winter resort. And in order to understand what's happening right now, we need to understand what happened. Um, Very similar to what happened in New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina, where there was government neglect and mass exodus of residents and a mass influx of um, non-native residents coming in with capital, buying up cheap land that is happening in Puerto Rico. This poem uh, borrows its title from a New York Times article written six months after the hurricane called Making a Crypto Utopia in Puerto Rico that documented these investors coming from California and descending on Puerto Rico. They live there now, and they essentially want to create their own city. And the first name they came up with is Puertopia. 
um, the etymology of which essentially means door nowhere. I dedicate this poem to um, all the organizers on the front lines on the island um, and to all of us in the diaspora who are taking their lead. Portopia. The cookies don't sing anymore. They click. Mosquitoes turn drone. Metropolis of crypto bro. Tax deductible greed. A door opens. An island drowns. A playground emerges. A boy, his toy. Depending on the faith, the most dangerous part of a wealthy man is his index finger. What he points to, who he lands on, a civilization, disposable income, pirate, in cargo short, new world, old order. Meanwhile, we, diaspora, separated by sea, build platanos and cut them on the same angle our mothers taught us to clap when the plane lands on either shore. Now, the beaches are gated and no one knows the names of the dead. Now, investors clean their beaks in the river, and this is how a man becomes a flood. Landlord of nothing, king of no good sky. Watch paradise misbehave. Watch the night pearl into a necklace of fists. Watch this El Junque, a real god machine, unhinge her jaw and swallow the flock. Where are the Puerto Ricans, huh? Cuchi Frito ghost town, battery operated citizenship. An island is not a tarmac. A disaster is not a destination. I was gonna read something else, but I think it might be more appropriate to read a poem I wrote after um, I visited Puerto Rico when I was a kid. Um, we used to go every summer and then stopped. And then I feel like as, I really appreciated what you shared because I feel like as I've gotten older, it's one thing to go back when you're a kid for family visits. And it's another thing when you have more autonomy and agency as you're older and you can sort of, um, what is a relationship to Puerto Rico or to your homeland mean um, on your own terms, right? Not sort of filter through a family member ushering you from place to place. All that to say, uh, this is a poem I wrote um, about uh, being, I think I was eight or nine, in my abuela's backyard watching her um, kill a chicken with her hands, which is very um, traditional and not a big deal, but I definitely felt like I was a New Yorkian. I was like, I am not from here. Like, we could just go to the store, right? Um, but I also recognize that I come from women who feel too much to feel too much, and that there is a lesson in everything. These are not women that will sit you down and have heart to hearts with you. They teach you by showing you. Um, and so perhaps there is a lesson um, in grief. Doña Teresa and the chicken. The wooden house in Castaner didn't come with air conditioner or anything cool. The heat was its own kind of music. So was Abuela, demanding, sharp-tongued, the kind of woman I imagine whose teeth grew in because she told them to. So the chicken never had a chance. It ran around the backyard, flapping its black feathered wings for mercy, for God's attention. But Papa Dios knew better than to get in between a woman feeding her grandkids. I looked over my shoulder, and there she was chasing him like an old lover. She came back to haunt yelling, hijo de puta, sinvergüenza, ven acá. Her rosary bead slapped against her chest over and over like a chant. And you knew everything in her path was temporary. Even the wind buckled at the knees at the sight of a woman too wise to act like her blood was softer than it was. And I saw her do it. And I think she knew, because a chicken clucked so hard, it spit up its own good throat. And she laughed, grabbed it by the neck, swung it high above her head like a propeller. Once, she gutted mom's favorite pig with a machete and fed it to her on her 12th birthday. And maybe that's how mama learned to love us, to kill the thing that feeds you. Years later, she didn't go to her best friend's funeral 
or the vecina who mothered her in New York barely made it through abuelas. I suppose all she had was to love until death and no more. So when we saw Doña Teresa lying in the casket, arms crossed, chin cocked up, the whole family cried and clawed, wanting her to come back, wanting her to shout, didn't I prepare you better than this? Uh, so this poem, um, I think, owes its genesis to Matthew Olsman's uh, notes regarding happiness um, and Vivi Francis as well. Um, it was born out of sort of not wanting to... Um, I sort of allowed my brain to take a set of detours and sort of return back to um, a narrative thread. Um, and uh, to be honest, I wrote this sitting outside of the In-N-Out in L.A., um, that's how good the burger was. I really got inspired. Um, if you have not been to the In-N-Out, please do that immediately. Um, they are not joking when they're... So okay, so or anyway. Um, so <laughs> I was like already getting pulled. <laughs> um, I... I, the short story is I thought I saw somebody at the at the um, drive-through window that was famous, and I started to think about this word famous and fame, and um, sort of the idea of, of access and who is let in and what we let in and how much of ourselves do we show. Like if you ever want to feel really bad about your life, just scroll on social media. Like just do a long scroll, right? Just like uh, and and sort of like you'll see like a perfect version, right? A curated version of everybody's life, right? And so I thought to myself what if I sort of lifted the veil like a, that glossiness off of my life right that we all walk out of our houses with and try to just keep it together and sort of maybe lifted that veil and spoke about maybe some of the things that are underneath it um, everybody's famous in LA shout out to the in and out which reminds me that I just bought fancy sheets for the first time in my adult life, which means I'm fancy too now, which is not what my three-year-old nephew would say, but absolutely how I felt when he said, Didi, you're my best friend, right? And it's like that. The first time I wore a black suit that hugged my shoulders and not my hips, the sidewalk lit up in a constellation of days old gum, which is so New York. So I slow danced along the spectacle of Ninth Avenue and remembered that I have jumped on more than one occasion at the sight of my own decadence until a vecina who knew me back when I rocked bangs and an awkward long ponytail asked what I'm up to these days. And I couldn't tell her the truth so I said, I write poems instead of my therapist asks if I know what PTSD is. The best front row seats I have are the ones to my own funeral, which feels weird to say because I dream I died and no one showed up. Nobody, except maybe for Stan. Yes, Stan, who fixed my flat tire with a hot patch this morning and called himself King. I told you, the world is full of VIPs who make minimum wage. I hope I'm still fancy, though I'm not convinced. Here I am, sitting outside the in and out wanting to high-five the weather that pours out of me, but I don't know how. The only time I won anything was the spring of 96. Remember Lucky? He bet $5 that you could beat all the sticky-fingered boys in a game of 21, and when you won, you ran home with the ball cupped under your arm like it was a winning lottery ticket, and your mother said, you better not dribble in the house, and don't you dare touch the walls with your dirty fingers. Legendary. Or the time you waited two hours outside the Reebok to take a picture with Magic Johnson. He slapped your hand. You wrapped it in plastic that night because it was going to be worth bazillions one day. Your mother ripped it off because saran wrap is expensive, and food stamps don't pay for regular people's shit. When you're older, she'll remind you that her house isn't a hotel, so you better stay a little while longer. And speaking of hotels, I'm at a fancy, no, really, five-star hotel lounging on Egyptian cotton sheets when the wireless network says there has been an error processing your request. And I remember she did not break my heart. I escaped a violence. But this is how death makes a name for itself. What does not kill me only makes me want to die a little less. 
I'm only trying to stay alive here. I'm trying to change my life. Where do I sign up? I'm trying to find the courage to say, no, you can't come in. I poke holes through the night. Baby, I'm a star. Um, so much love to City Asylum and again the Latinx and Proud organizers and to my fellow poets uh, in struggle Um, uh, how many people here have a parent whose first language is not English can you please raise your hand yeah pretty much most of the room Um, we don't have an official language in this country um, and yet I think one of the ways in which we make people feel other or um, question their citizenship is by telling them to speak English and to go back to their country. Um, and so this poem is a poem I wrote for my mom um, as a way to subvert the hierarchies of language that puts English at the top and every other language at the bottom, as if languages like people don't move, as if we don't bend and blend words. Um, so I, I think that Spanglish is a legitimate language. I think that every generation creates its own slang, like lit wasn't around when I was in high school. You, know, you made a bucket and you were like, butter. You're like, <laughs> <laughs> Malcolm is, I, I did that for Malcolm. Um, and, uh, and so many languages that we create, that cultures create, uh, I think are, are, um, are legitimate and should be studied. Uh, so this is a poem for my mom and maybe for somebody that you know and love too. My mom holds her tongue like a shotgun with two good hands. Her tongue all brass knuckles slipping in between her lips, her hips are all laughter and wind clap. She speaks a sancocho of Spanish and English pushing up and against one another in rapid fire. Mira, there is no telling my mama to be quiet. My mama don't know quiet. Her voice is one size better fit all. And you best not tell her to hush. She waited too many years for her voice to arrive to be told it needed housekeeping. See, English sits in her mouth remixed, so strawberry becomes a strawberry, and cookie becomes a cookie, and kitchen keychain and chicken all sound the same. (laughs) My mama doesn't say yes, she says, aha. And suddenly, the sky in her mouth becomes a Hector Lavoe song. Her tongue can't lay itself down flat enough for the English language. It got too much hip, too much bone, too much conga, too much cuatro to two-step. Got too many piano keys in between her teeth. It got too much clave, too much hand clap. Got too much salsa to sit still. It be an anxious child wanting to make Play-Doh at a concrete English be too neat for her kind of wonderful. Her words spill in conversation between women whose hands are all they got. Sometimes our hands are all we got. And accents that remind us that we are still bomba, still plena. You say wepa, say wepa. Wepa. And a stranger becomes your hermano. Say dale. dale. And a crowd becomes a family reunion. My mother's tongue is a telegram from her mother, decorated with the coquis of El Campo. So even when her lips can barely stretch themselves around English, her accent is a stubborn compass, always pointing her towards home. Thank you, Pittsburgh. Thank you. So uh, let's go into, you know, the remedios, the things that are helping us get through, you know, these tough times. Mm-hmm. So what are, you, what are you reading? What are you listening to? What are you watching? Wow. I'm watching really stupid TV, but I'm yes. reading, I'm reading Melissa Broder, So Sad Today. I think I might have mentioned that last time. And then I'm reading Roberto Bolaño's The Secret of Evil. Nice. Um, just so it makes my heart and my brain just like fully expand and I'm reading like first thing in the morning so I can really like I don't know wake up and feel (laughs) Um, oh that's lovely that's a wonderful practice Um, well I just got Patricia Engel's book in the mail Infinite Country so I'm going to be reading that and reviewing it for the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette and I just got this wonderful advanced readers copies of um, All the Water I've Seen is Running by Elias Rodriguez um, who I got to meet in Philly actually last week and a really wonderful writer and just wonderful thinker and so it's always exciting to get that and I'm obsessed 
obsessing about Camilo Echeverria. I don't know if you know him. He's a Colombian singer, um, but he's got some jams and he's got a song called Ropa Cara that I have been listening to way too much because the chorus is Y le gusta que me ponga ropa cara Balenciaga Gucci Prada Pero de eso tengo nada <laughs> And it, I, I already it, love it It is a jam So I have been enjoying the shit yeah. out of that um, And you can never like write that song in Spanish like expensive clothes you know like like that <laughs> No and it's got little lines that just he has little lines in songs He has another song where he says I'm gonna turn the air to 16 so we can cuddle like it's cold and I'm like that's such a Colombian thing because they all have little individual air conditioners in every room because air conditioning came later and they're ultra modern don't get me wrong there's like sleek mm. Mercedes Benz looking ass things mm. and you're you know like stuck on your ceiling and you put the temperature on but it just cracks me up because I'm like my cousin always puts it at 16 <laughs> which Amazing. I have no idea what it is in Fahrenheit probably like <laughs> 60 but yeah. it's still you're just like what so yeah that's what I've been listening to some Camino Nice. Well, I want to close those out with some promo to the upcoming Latinx and Proud event, uh, April 27th, 2021, um, on City of Asylum's virtual page, virtual channel on Crowdcast. You can find it at crowdcast.com forward slash COA. Um, we'll link it in the show notes, but it's featuring Eduardo Sicorral. Jessica Montilla and Vanessa Angelica Villarreal. So, um, incredible lineup. Um, the Latinx and Proud, you know, it's a nonstop series. And we're just like coming back strong after after COVID. I mean, this is still virtual <laughs> and it's not like the after times yet, but yeah, it's going to be exciting. I'm so excited. And, you know, I'm a really big fan of the series, um, not just because I'm on the board, um, but yeah. because I just really love watching it. You know, this is one of those things that if we didn't create it, um, I would be sad it didn't exist. <laughs> so, <laughs> And it's for those, you know, and Denise said, you know, she, she would have found herself a lot sooner if if something like this existed, you know, that it, that if she would have been like exposed to something like this back in the day when she was coming up. And this is, this is for those, uh, those people out there that, that need it. Yeah. Yeah. It's what absolutely wonderful. And yes. So please scope us out. Um, check us out at cityofasylum.org. We're at asterixjournal.org. Um, just type .org and eventually you'll find us, I think. All right. That's how the internet works. That's how the internet works, right? Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, thank you so much for having us and thank you so much for listening. And um, adios. Adios. City of Asylum builds a just community by protecting and celebrating creative free expression. Asterix is a transnational feminist literary arts journal co-founded by Angie Cruz and Adriana E. Ramirez, committed to social justice and translation, placing women of color at the center of the conversation. Charla Cultural is hosted by Carla Lamb and Adriana E. Ramirez. Voice of Goddess is Alexis Jabour. Editorial support by Clarissa E. Leon. Production design and brand management by Little Owl Creative. Our theme song is Colombia Folk by Luis Alfonso. And thank you as always to our sponsors, Asterix Journal and City of Asylum. <laughs>